0: Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., which is part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president here and professor of Old Testament. And I'm joined by my colleagues, professor of Old Testament, Dr. Peter Lee, professor of New Testament, Dr. Paul Jean, and professor of Systematic
1: <laughs> I don't know why. I thought systematics wow. as I looked that? at you. <laughs> wow. Yeah.
0: When Is that a promotion, I don't, I don't know if I'm promoted or insulted. <laughs> <Professor> <laughs> One of the two. Professor of New Testament. Or demoted. Go ahead and just leave it in. You see how good of friends we all are. <laughs> Professor of New Testament, Dr. Tommy Keene. And we're not joined by our systematician. That's right. Dr. Grace Sutanto is out today, folks. So the the level of discourse is going to be at a decidedly lower level, but I think we can hold it together and just not tell, you know, bad jokes. We'll do our best. We'll do our best. We're talking today about something that systematicians try to avoid anyways, and that's Genesis 6 through 9. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't make it very far through the not telling bad jokes. That's right. It's (laughs) as if Gray wouldn't have been here anyhow. what difference does it make? That's right. So we're going to be dealing with six through nine tough texts. Yeah. I should have said that on the front end. This is episode five of tough texts, something around that around there. So tough texts in the Bible. And there's a bunch of tough topics in this tough text. Yes. That's this right. is a, this is a one, two, three punch on this one. <laughs> that's great. Okay. Get it, it all in there. If not more. <laughs> so we've got everything from what's going on with the sons of God and the sons of, daughters of men to Mm -hmm. Nephilim because they're just there thrown into the middle of that story. And then of course we have a global flood that follows it all. Um, We're not even talking about, the astronomical ages that we see in the Toledote of chapter five. Okay, the genealogies in chapter five and these ages that add up to over a thousand years, mm-hmm. you know of only a handful of individuals. So we're going to dive into the issues that are going on here. What do we know? What do we not know? What's available to us in terms of just interpreting this in light of the New Testament, the rest of Scripture. Um, this isn't referenced a lot, though it's referenced a little. It seems like elsewhere in scripture. So we want to take a look at what's available to us and how we can move forward as Christians who we have to acknowledge too, we get all of as John frame says in the Bible we get all of God's word words on any topic doesn't mean we get all the words that there could be said about a topic. So we've got all of God's words on what's going on here in the pre diluvian period before the flood. Um, But it's pretty clear that we don't know there's a lot there's a lot of mystery. As well, so let's go ahead and start off the conversation with the opening of Genesis six, and this conflict that has arisen. Apparently, after after Lamech's uh, violent tirade in the previous story, we now have violence and conflict all over the face of the earth, and it seems to be um, most clearly manifested in this in this sons of God taking the daughters of men in, in some kind of marriage, some sort of relationship that results in, um, uh, that, that results in offspring. Okay. And so the question is what's going on in this story? Let me start with you, Dr. Lee. You ready? You got all the answers.
1: Uh, I have questions. <laughs> That's a good How's place that? to start. I mean, That's I guess the to start. yeah, the tough part about Genesis six, and it's been you know very well documented and discussed. Lots of articles. Um, starts off really with the question of identity: who are these sons of God? Who are these daughters of men? Um, and uh, what is the nature of their offspring? These mighty men, uh, the Hebrew word there being geberim. These who are these mm. um and then how do they relate to these uh, Nephilim uh, that seem to exist uh, prior? Yeah. Uh, it seems that the Nephilim and these, the offspring of the sons of God, daughters of men, these uh, you know, they refer to themselves as the men of the name, or the men of renown, at least that's the way it's translated, but it's literally men of the name, uh, meaning that they are claiming for themselves a divine name, a, uh. a sense of super-god, thus and this was the problem of the pre-flood world, is, is that kind of royal divine kingship ideology that mm-hmm. they saw themselves as either um, equal status or perhaps even above status to God. And the, so here's the problem of the ancient world and thus the need to bring judgment, the flood on the ancient world. And so Genesis 6 is in part trying to explain the rationale. Why was there a need for such a cataclysmic flood and the result of that is because of these sons of God, daughters of men, yeah. uh, this this unholy union that produced these offspring that became the havoc of the ancient world. And so...
0: And this, this would be a continuation of... Adam and Eve taking for themselves the position of arbiter in the garden by taking the apple to be like God and then we have Lamech standing up against mm-hmm. the god of life and you know we, we're seeing this kind of direct line and being a man of murder and violence and and claiming this kind of yeah sort of godlike status so there's, a, there's kind of a direct line don't we to have to, to this and story of Babel narrative
1: yeah these uh, pre-diluvian texts uh, the the real um, sin that seemed to really plague this ancient world is exactly that: this this kind of claim to deity, mm-hmm. uh, the sense of um, equal, either equal status or above status to God. You saw that in the Lamech. You know there are two Lamechs. This is the bad Lamech, the bad not Lamech. the father of Noah. Lamech. You see that him. You see that to a certain degree again, even in Adam and Eve, the fact that they are want uh, to establish their own authority over the the law of God in the garden. You see that, in, uh, and then you see that here in Genesis chapter six. So it's just a constant thing that you see in the ancient world.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so we know also just in other literature, kings kings could become gods when they died in Egypt. Egypt was kind of unique in holding for a long time the idea that your king, your god, was a king while he was alive. He was he was actual deity on earth. You know. So this is something where cognate literature, you know, other literatures that are similar shine a light, perhaps, on how we ought to understand this use of the term sons of God. And this is a pretty pretty common interpretation today. And I think um, it's probably closest to the one that I would hold to. We could kind of tweak it a little bit. But I think this makes sense in light of the text and where the text is going. But it's not the only interpretation.
1: No, right. the I, I don't know if it's more the common view, but a common view
0: yeah.
1: is to interpret the sons of God as um, angels, yeah,
0: which they're clearly called elsewhere in
1: Bible. That and is angels true. Angels so are called the sons of God. That is true, and that so it's not unprecedented. I mean, there's yeah. a reason for uh, for interpreting it this way, even in the context of the Old Testament, and uh, and so here are angels who are taking for themselves human women, uh, daughters of men, um, that they have uh, relations, and and thus their offspring is this sort of unholy. Um, union between uh, spirit beings and flesh beings. That, mm-hmm. At least that's allegedly the the idea.
0: Yeah, and so they've come together. They've now had children, and this is where I mean the text doesn't really say this, though a lot of people get the impression that this is this is the case. Including, if I remember, Russell Crowe's uh, Noah movie it has this kind of a, it gives this impression. These beings are born out of this unholy union. And the and, and those beings could be called the nephilim, and are are in this case
2: one of the. I mean, Russell Crowe Assign. and his authority, mm-hmm. notwithstanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. W- one of the credibility. I want to <laughs> cite all texts? This is <laughs> a history of
0: reception program. Tommy, <laughs> he's, why not,
2: he's you, a very good actor.
0: Uh, you ivory tower types don't know how to receive all, <laughs> yes. all of reception of the text.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one one thing, one thing that gives some degree of plausibility to that interpretation is the Nephilim are treated as like exceptional; they're yeah, different. Yeah, there's and something going on. It's it's through the actions of the Nephilim that we get this kind of rise in violence to almost cosmic levels that requires the flood to yeah. tamp it down. Um, what what's going on? So if it's not that. These Nephilim are Mm -hmm. semi-supernatural sons of the gods or sons of demonic. Kind of Hercules types. Yeah, Hercules types. That's what I was looking for. Half-bloods. Yeah. Um, Then –
0: Half-blood princes.
2: Half-blood – well, I was thinking of – I was actually (laughs) thinking of Percy Jackson. Okay, okay. I was going the Percy Jackson route to my fictional knowledge. Both having –
0: Teenage children. Right. We're, we're aware of the young adult literature. Yeah. That's good. Yeah,
2: this is where we get our interpretive chops. You guys are describing my summer reading. So, <laughs> <laughs> if it's not that, uh, how do we explain the kind of like climactic disaster that seems to be
0: coming? Yeah, uh, yeah. That it heightens the the tension because you have this sort of uh, abomination these abominations walking the earth right you know i think it's interesting you do have elsewhere in scripture too we have uh, i'm trying to think through all the names that are used you have the nephilim you have the rephaim you have the anakim all of which are these kind of remembered figures of old they show up the Rephaim show up a good bit in in other canaanite literature right. as well And they're the kind of, you know, we we want to be careful about over applying that. But there does seem like there's this memory of these mighty warriors and and, heroes and and heroes in quotes and and, and kings in the past. Now, some of them have some kind of physical stature identified with them. Contra, I think, to Russell Crowe, who would say they were stone people. Okay. Actually, I have no idea what Is Russell right? Crowe would say. <laughs>
1: I never saw the movie. Is that right? I don't know. I can't, they, I, they were creatures. We'll link, yeah, they're we'll like, aren't they the made comments? of stone, don't though? Don't yeah.
0: to yeah. Link point. to movie <laughs> in the comments. Uh, I have no idea what Russell Crowe would think either. He's being clumped with this with this whole movie. Um, but it, it does, actually, the movie kind of, I think, faithfully represents a sort of Second Temple Jewish mystical interpretation yeah, the, of the text. it's you know. kind of interpretation. Yeah. Of so... Um, there is this kind of memory and, and, and they would have a physical manifestation of being large, right. Mm-hmm. And being giants. And, and somehow they have some kind of also recessive gene that somehow makes it to the flood through the flood because you have descendants or people who have that, those characteristics after the flood later on Goliath being a famous one. Um, you know, so there's some evidence there that you have this kind of like history or memory of these characters that aren't merely symbolic because you can point to people around you and go, see, there's some over yeah, there. Right. Okay. There's a guy who's got that thing going on. And, um, you know, that there are no kind of clumping those groups, the Raphael the Anakim and the Nephilim all into one group here. And so I think there again, you have this kind of argument. There's something unique happening here, mm-hmm. but it is notable that it doesn't actually say the Nephilim are the descendants of these. It says in those days, the Nephilim were on the land then it tells you about this unholy union and then it says and these were the mighty men of old right so it's 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 kind of remembering back to this time in the distant distant past that is you know not remembered with um crystalline notarial detail okay but rather we're getting kind of broad sweeps which i think we've been seeing already too in the genealogies of genesis one through five
2: i don't know where to to put this but um you're talking about the mighty men of the past, and the text does that kind of thing too. And I mean, one thing we might want to talk about here is that, at least in terms of however it maps onto actual history, in terms of like the of biblical meta narrative and the biblical historiography and the way the Bible talks about it, even in the New Testament, yeah. we've history is periodized. It it works differently at different stages. Yeah. And I'm thinking particularly of Jude. I'm sorry, Second Peter here, where Um, the scoffers say, in the last days, uh, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. Like, and the idea that history is the same and will continue to be the same in perpetuity is something that scoffers might say. Peter uh, argues, contrarily, They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, that they, that then exist, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And he he kind of posits that that old world, which I think he's referencing Genesis 1 all the way to Genesis 11, Mm pre-Abraham, was different. It was a different order. Yeah.
0: And people then probably said things, I think it, part of his argument is people back then were probably also saying, you know, time's always been the same, it's just going to continue right. on, and, and look how we know that that's not the case.
2: Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't know what to do with that theologically, because Gray's not here, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, it does indicate to me that they they considered these ages, these aeons, mm. as functioning under di- at least a different historical principles, perhaps different by a lot and you know biological yeah. or, or just s- something of a different order of the way the world worked yeah. and they divide it Genesis 11 then you have the Abrahamic all the you know the old covenant and then you have the new covenant and then right. you will have this next age that is to come which will be the eternal age yeah
0: and I think we're, we another just argument because I think this, I think what you're saying there too could be used in support of all of these views or is corroborated by all the views there's the fact that after the flood when noah is given his full covenant right it's kind of finalized um he's told that now one of the things the lord promises and we all think about the bow that's pointed up into the sky and that god lord's not going to flood the earth again but it's actually a lot more than that It's, it's about stability in nature you know there's Seed time and harvest, day and night, heat and cold. You know, you have this um, this idea that maybe before this, it wasn't stable. Yeah. things It was crazy. It was yeah. a different world before the flood. And now it's going to be stabilized in a way that it hadn't been before. At least that's kind of the implication of the Noahic covenant. Again, reminding us, there's a lot going on. I think we have to read Genesis 1 through 11. Um, I mean, there's Genesis 1, and then you have Genesis 2 through 11, mm-hmm. right? And they're all kind of... Um, very distant history, and and you have this great, that use that great term, so important here, with different historiographies. In other words, different ways of writing about history. We we think we all know what writing about history is, but if you think about it, you know, a news article reads very different from a biography, which reads very different from, you know, uh, maybe a fictional biography or something like that. Uh, The questions that you're asking about the period in time is, is going to change the way you tell the history and how what you go into detail about.
2: And I can look at each of those periods and yeah. see something. Okay, this is what changed here. Okay, we've got the pre-Diluvian period. What changes? Yeah. Maybe it's the stabilization of the yeah. seasons or something like that. And then after Abraham, what changes? We've got nations and a nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, what hap- what's the big change? I and mean, we can reference our previous episode on demonic forces and satan what changes between the old and the new well lots i mean you've got new creation in the age of the spirit but you've also got the binding of the the strong man the dragon has been thrown down now Mm -hmm. and so this age differs from the ages previous because the dragon is now bound and then of course in the final age we have eternal life whatever whatever the specifics of that must be um so it's it's this periodization of time, right. and it's non—it's it's not just—yeah, um, th- there's substance to it. There's something that's different, that's yeah. shifted.
0: And it's not—these aren't—yeah, these aren't ad hoc arguments. These are the major right. nodes of human history. It's actually yeah. a, a redemptive history there that we don't t- think about a lot, is that there's Genesis. there's There's Adam to Noah. That's one major epoch. And then there's Noah— to the new heavens and new right. earth. And for, P- right. for Second Peter 3, that's kind of the argument he's making in right. a way, right? He's kind of developing these, these two major worlds that we have. Well, the,
1: us. This, guy, this might surprise you guys, but I actually find uh, Meredith Klein helpful.
2: Yeah. I was wondering if this was going to go, <laughs> go out on
0: a
1: limb. I might go just a, just a bit and just mention <laughs> that I think Dr. Klein is helpful because he did he said exactly what you just said, Scott, mm-hmm. that uh, he looked at Second Peter 3, and uh, saw how Peter, the Apostle Peter, referred to the pre-flood world as the world that then was, or the mm-hmm. ancient world. And he interpreted that as a fully developed, you know, pre-flood civilization, a complete developed society. We, I think we tend to see a, you know, the ancient primeval community as being kind of agrarian, kind of, you know, unsophisticated, mm. um, Kind of rural type type folk, and he what he is saying is that that probably is not the picture hmm. they had a fully developed civilization society laws you know structure uh-huh. everything that we think of in terms of a post flood <coughs> community so he looked at for example the um, the bad Lamech had three sons of of um uh, I can' their names are escaping me, but, but he it said that each of them were the sources of different areas of societal life. Um, one mm-hmm. was developing husbandry, yeah. the other was developing humanities, arts and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. A third was uh, developing the use of ironwork, so metallurgy. So all of the things that you would think of in terms of a society, literature, um, you know agriculture, even pr- uh, some level of a proto-engineering, you could see there, so the idea that they are unsophisticates would be completely inaccurate. So he actually saw the flood as the dividing point of the entire history of, um, of humanity, in a sense, that uh, you can talk about a pre-flood world, post-flood world, and that's a big dividing point. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, the fact that the pre-flood world was brought to an end by a flood he, see, he saw as analogous to how we are looking at the end of our world with the return of Christ, because that's exactly what Peter is saying. Yeah, that's what he said. up that type. Right. Yeah. He is saying that, you know, uh, in the pre-flood world in Noah's day, he is saying, he was preaching that there is going to come an end. There is going to come a judgment. You need to repent. They're not repenting because they don't believe that, in the same way that we preach right. the return of Christ, the end, judgment day, so you need to repent, and people don't believe this. They don't think that's going to happen. And th- so he sees the analogy of of uh, Adam to Noah as being analogous in terms of a the end of Noah's days as being a la- analogous to our last days, right? And uh, sees the flood really as it. In fact, uh, you know, it takes a little bit more time to kind of develop this, but he he actually has made the case that if you think of the quantity of human history, the bulk of human history actually occurs from Genesis 1 to Genesis 9, 10 right around there, mm-hmm. then from Abraham to our day to day, yet it's concentrated only in nine or 10 chapters because the book of Genesis is really trying to fast-track us to Abraham, the covenant, and then the redemptive line to Israel, and so forth. Yeah. Um, but if you actually think of quantity of time, the bulk of human history is actually taking place in those 9 to 10 chapters at least that's the suggestion he makes interesting. and mm-hmm. so yeah so i, I find that kind of helpful yeah. uh, in terms of just trying to see the the significance of the flood as a redemptive yeah. and you know redemptive judgment event it's not just you know a we love animals type thing you know it's something much more uh, grand and and powerful than that so yeah, I wonder how to map that on to
2: kind of like a secular human historiography, like how we think about how our age at least thinks about how history works. Is the big defining difference that you know there were demonic forces running amok before the flood? You know, m- angels marrying yeah. the children of men? Or is it, uh, you know, we discovered the wheel or something like that? And, yeah, you know, is it something that we can kind of secularize or...
1: Explain kind of well, in industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. industry. Yeah, um, yeah. Again, you may find this surprising, but I find Klein helpful again at this point. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Appreciate it, Peter. <laughs> uh, he suggested that, uh, for example, the uh, the 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 bad lemic and the development of metallurgy. Uh, he suggested also was in the uh, uses of like weaponry, swords, and things of this nature, and that what we saw. Again, it's subtle because it doesn't quite mention it, but if you carry the Genesis 3.15 line forward, you're talking about a conflict between the sons of, uh, not sons of God, the, the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent uh, idea, and that, you know, you're tracing those two lines in Genesis 1 to 11. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the questions that, and it does seem to be a reasonable one, is how is it that the seed of the woman by the days of Noah is basically left down to just one family? Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives. So it's eight people that make up the line of the woman. And we know one of them is actually the seed of the serpent in Ham. Mm -hmm. So it's really only seven if you really think about it. So how how did the line get that close to extinction um, by the time of the flood? And he suggested that the reason why was because of the persecution by the seed of the serpent. And that the reason why it was down to eight, seven, is because... The line was nearly coming to an end, and if the line ends, then there is no, you know, seed of the woman that can crush the head of the serpent. Okay, so idea. that's so.
0: interesting because that gets us to kind of a third option that we haven't talked about as much. That that might overlap with some of the other options, which is that the, the one of these groups, sons of God or daughters of men, is the seed of the woman, and one of these groups is the seed of the serpent right yeah and that this is the genetic line that's what this is referring back to okay and um, that can be if that's just talking merely about kind of you know genetic descendants then that's going to be its own separate option I think however which is how I think Klein takes it as well is that if it's talking about sort of spiritual descendants then now we're kind of getting more to the so what's going on, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, that these are, these oppressors, um, I mean, it's kind of, it's it, etymologically just the way that, the not etymologically, um, philologically, in Genesis 6-1, the way that it's laid out, you know, when man, and here we have man, Adam, began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters, by note, were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. It'd be kind of strange to say this is talking about two totally different, like genetic lines or something like that or race that's descending down from the seed of the serpent versus the seed of woman. However, it seems like it's it's saying that as people populated, there arose this conflict yeah. between those who follow the serpent, right, into violence and death and those faithful who remain faithful, those who are fundamentally in the line of the seed of the woman.
1: Yeah, in terms of just, you know, what happened pre flood, post flood, mm-hmm. I mean his suggestion was the flood was a way to preserve the line of the woman because they were under per- persecution and fire. If he didn't mm-hmm. act, then the line was a threat. And, and
0: by that we mean the the faithful.
1: Yeah, yeah. right, right. So uh, so that is what—that's uh, a big change, yeah. or at least in part one of the big changes between, yeah. uh, between the two. In terms of his view of the sons of God, I mean, he just saw that as— anti-God kings really is just, you know.
0: people who claim divinity for themselves.
1: That idea of preserving
2: the line spiritually does fit with, again, the next epoch, the next eon, which is the Abrahamic, Mm -hmm. where we're dividing the nations and choosing one nation from those nations in order to preserve God's presence through his
0: his people. Yeah, so we have three kind of main options here right we've got angels and humans I'm not doing in the order that we went through them but you have the angels so this is come kind of unholy union between the angels and humans this could be tyrannical perhaps div, you know claiming divinity of their own kings sons of God through sexual exploitation abuse kidnapping assault taking women and it's because whatever is going on it's highlighting the, the, the horror of this post fall world Right? Mm-hmm. So it's manifesting that. Um, and then 30, maybe it's just the line of the woman and the line of the serpent. It's just those two lines, and that's that's what the distinction is. It's just between those two different groups. And then we have, I should throw in there one last one just because as we were preparing for this, I popped open. my, my old prof uh, Bruce Walke's commentary. You know he has a kind of interesting conclusion. He goes through these three options, and these are kind of the three, you know options you usually hear from. And then he says the best solution is to combine, combine angelic interpretation with a divine king view. The tyrants were demon-possessed. Okay, So here we have kind of tyrants, kings, who are living with some kind of or are fueled by some kind of demon possession. And as we were kind of chatting about this, I, I was sort of surprised by that move that he makes. It, it is in line with kind of later prophetic mm-hmm. discussion about, Maybe spiritual beings being behind the kings. You think of the princes of Persia, right? or are holding back uh, Gabriel from yeah. giving his message to Daniel? Yeah. And then obviously, right. by the time we get to the New Testament, we have this being you know, demon possession is right. a semi-regular thing.
2: Yeah, I and mean, you've got the principalities and powers, and yep. Paul assumes that those are. It seems like those are human. Yeah. be you know human powerful human beings with
0: demonic backing yeah, yeah and that's the point right you right. don't think it's just about humans right there's demonic powers that are behind right. these things right so it feels like a it feels to me like kind of a second temple <laughs> a little later a later type of interpretation mm-hmm. which doesn't of course mean that it's wrong it's just interesting because we haven't seen much in terms of demon possession at this point in genesis so think, kind of coming out of nowhere if that's the case
2: i think it's worth saying maybe at this point that um you, you do have a couple of New Testament texts that seem to weigh you know weigh in yeah. on this you yeah know, maybe second well first Peter 3 18 through 22 second Peter in in a couple of those spots as well mm-hmm. and then Jude um, perhaps Ephesians 5 is kind of background yeah. um, what's in the ear right and, and there can be a temptation at this point to say well scripture interprets scripture so that therefore we've got our solution. It has to be, I I don't remember what your numbers were, but it has to be solution one. It has to be the demonic angels. And there's a couple of problems with, with just concluding that first, all of those new Testament texts are under dispute as to exactly what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Um, they're, you know, highly, they're, they're their own sort of tough texts. So you've got to decide on that first. And then even if you make that decision, Yes, Scripture does interpret Scripture, and that's a hermeneutical principle. But the fact that Scripture does interpret Scripture doesn't mean it has to be interpreting this text. Mm-hmm. You know, that, um, okay, I've got a correspondence here. This text has to be interpreting that text. Well, you've got to prove that as well. You've got to establish that that correspondence is is solid. Um, and then even then, that the New Testament interpretation uh, is intended to be authoritative and canonized. Mm-hmm. So you've got a, a number of kinds of lines that make that you, you can over simpl- you can make that kind of connection overly simplistic. Yeah, right, right.
0: And not, and as you mentioned, none of those texts are really that clear. They seem to be sort of referencing ideas, larger dynamics, yep. and they might be thinking of this text. Right. you know and they might be thinking of it as a good symbolic example or and something they, like and that and they might, you yeah. know like Precedents.
2: Ex- i'm not claiming this view but one mm-hmm. thing that could be happening for example is yeah second peter is referencing first enoch um, or or first peter 3 18 20 is refer- referencing first enoch first enoch but but maybe it's just referencing that as a yeah a story we all know mm-hmm. you know, this, yeah, as yeah. we're not like, saying like this is the, true it's yeah. just a story that uh, or an analogy that is in the air, and that we mm-hmm. all are familiar with that analogy, um, and it's not intended to be a commentary. The, Peter doesn't intend it to be a commentary yeah. on Genesis 6. Yeah, so,
0: and a- obvious examples of it would be places where, like, Paul cites you know v- various Greek poets, right. you know, all Cretans are liars. Right. And he's obviously not making a point about inspiration or all of the other conclusions that Epimenides... May have come, come to, right. you know, right. so I think we have to remember that too, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I'm I'm a big proponent of that with my students go to the rest of scripture to find the answer. And honestly, there's kind of a negative side of that too. If this was the case that we should worry about angels mating with humans. I would expect there to be more information about it. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but, as a matter, but, as but as a matter of fact, like, like we get kind of the opposite, is that Jesus says, you know, angels don't marry and give and take in marriage. You know, right. so now be clear, he's not clearly, that's not a clear defeater to this argument either. He might be talking about something else. Right. Okay, um, so you got to take all these things kind of lightly. Uh, with that said, I think we have these, these views that we've offered, I think are all good, authorizable views. They're all within the realm of the teaching of Scripture. And, um, you know, if you're preaching or teaching on these, I find it's always helpful just to lay out for your group. Hey, these are the options that are out there. And you can say, "I, I tend to fall out on this one for this reason and this reason and this reason. But Scripture isn't exactly clear. The reason why you don't want to come in strong and only give one answer, no matter what it is, is that if you don't recognize that this is not something we know with the same certainty that we know that Jesus is Lord or that he rose from the dead, then when your audience goes off and hears about the other views, they'll say, well, my teacher and pastor never told me about those views. That's mm-hmm. my kind of bigger concern as a seminary prof, mm-hmm. making sure students know there are other views that are plausible. Here's the reasons why maybe you shouldn't believe that view or this view. You know, I so often hear about Students coming back from, you know, the religion 101 class their freshman year in college who grew up in a church and they're like, my pastor never told me about I've been lied to about this. What else did they keep from me? You know, Mm -hmm. and that's where a lot of that. That's where a lot of that kind of deconstruction that we see out there is coming from the churches. I think oftentimes it's pastors speaking too confidently about things that honestly, we have to say there's more mystery to it than than we're aware of. So we'll have to get to the flood another time I guess we'll have to get to the <laughs> well
2: I, and I do think so you could end these episodes right like it feels like we're supposed to land on a view and yeah. we, at no point have we ever landed on a view yeah. on a, but I, I do th- your like your final point I think is helpful is that there's actually multiple views that are consistent with orth- orthodoxy right. there's biblically there's biblical lines that we have to maintain mm-hmm. and there's a minimalist kind of interpretation and a maximalist interpretation yeah. And within that there's some freedom. Um and, right. and none of those options are either from a historical, scientific or biblical viewpoint, none of none of those options are um out of the realm of yeah. reasonable.
0: And, and if you know. someone's saying, Well, where are the barriers? You just got you just seem to be throwing it all up in the air and I'd say, Oh no, we we believe these are historical accounts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, it, like we said earlier, it may not be the same kind of history in terms of historiography that uh, you're and you, used and you to. Mean
2: there, you mean there it might be not the same kind of way in which we tell, we tell history. Until we tell history, that's right. Yeah, The yeah.
0: same kind of historiography.
2: I think that's important because you could take it as, you know, this: the world worked on a cosmic physics, biological level different before the flood. Like, a, as y- you could take it that route. And you mm-hmm. could also take it, like, these redemptive historical ages as second peter and other writers seem to imply that the there's these cosmic differences you could also yeah. map that on onto And that
0: would be right. That would be like a different history, right? Yeah,
2: d- yeah, a different and and why then this kind of technicolor presentation in Genesis mm. 1 through 11? Well, it's remembering a bygone age and that's yeah. what we do. We present the bygone age in technicolor.
0: And and, and also, I guess what I add to it, too, it, when I read history, I expect certain things. You know, there was a man named Noah, and he lived in this particular area that was northwest of this other area. These are the other kings yeah. who reigned during yeah. his time. You know, that's, that's what I'd expect having read Samuel Kings and Chronicles. Mm-hmm. I'd expect something like that. Um, being in a, you know, a 21st century American, I'd also expect all kinds of other details like biological information as to how these things took place, mm-hmm. what was going on. Were there any legal systems in place mm-hmm. to enforce justice? <laughs> I'd expect all this stuff that, that Meredith Klein was, was surmising about yeah. and kind of interpolating. What we can see here is there's a different concern. They're not giving those kind of details, right. either because they don't know them or they're not interested in them. Right. Yeah, so that
1: main,
2: may not be the main point. Yeah. yeah.
0: And with recognizes a whole variety, I mean, just like I could wake up this morning and say, man, I got out of bed and I was beat. My head was killing me. And, mm. you know, I don't know how I made it out the door. That's history, but that's mm-hmm. not going to pass for like a Washington Post article on what happened this morning. Right. You know, that's a different kind of history writing. So being aware of that, too, there's different ways of writing or, or accounting for history and one thing we see here is that i would argue these events took place i think they're faithful representations of them but they may not have had all the same concerns in faithfully representing them that i do right and that's okay that's actually not not just okay that's good that's wonderful right so um I think that's a big part of it is just going back and realizing that's the case, and yet no, we're not saying these things didn't happen. This right. is crazy. Right. This was obviously made up. This is some sort of merely mythical, un, uh, you know, fictionalized account of something. It's
2: intended yeah. to say, to tell us what the world was like. Yeah, yep. and, and it's telling what us what God we did about to know. it. Yep. And then and, how that's better.
1: And I think it's in, it was intended to assure the ancient readers, the Israelites, when they're reading. I mean, they're reading about you know if the Israelites who are receiving this are the ones who are in the wilderness about to pull out and enter into Canaan, mm-hmm. they're reading about their God who is now with them now, and it is their God who is also this primeval God who created, that brought the. Um, Uh, the the judgment of the flood I mean really in many ways you you really highlight the the majesty of God the power of the Lord in a primeval setting and that's an assurance to the Israelites who are reading this yeah uh, to remind them that this is the God that is with them now it's the same God that was with that was there in the ancient world um, that made covenant with Abraham and and so forth so
0: yeah that's a great note to end on Peter Um, Again, just as when we were talking Genesis one, I think ending on doxology is a good thing. Look what God has done. Look how He saw the suffering, and He came and did something about it. And it sets the stage for the rest of the history of redemption. We get the earth recreated. We get a a second Adam, as it were, who emerges on the scene, and God begins. And we get it. We get what what you know, um, John Calvin will call the theater of God's glory. Right, this this created universe in which. Uh, redemption will take place and that's that's a beautiful thing so it's good to end on what we know is true and it's a lot of fun and i think it's actually edifying for us to reflect on what's possible what are the possible interpretations so thanks brothers for being a part of this conversation look forward to coming back later down the road and talking about the flood in a later episode until then take care enchanted world, and they all assumed all animals talked and all this stuff. And I'm like, actually, I don't think the Bible reads that way. I think it I actually think reads it kind of surprisingly naturalistic and not mythical. Right. You know.
2: In most places. And then the myth kind of breaks through in bits and pieces. And
0: they'll use it in their poetry. You know, they'll talk about Rahab and Leviathan. And yet no one ever talks about them, like, he, the history. Numbers, he, you know?
2: mentioned this in the Miracles episode, which I just thought, it kind of changed my perspective a bit because – yeah, the reason why Balaam, the donkey talking, it's it's treated in Scripture as weird, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as opposed to most myth, which doesn't treat those yeah. kinds of things as weird. Yeah, he, he would reason
0: with the donkey yeah. on the side yeah. of the road. You just start talking. You know. So oh. I, yeah,
2: I'm I'm persuaded that you're right. Indeed,
0: that makes sense to me, and that actually makes the Bible really powerful. How you can read it in the modern Western world and still see. Yeah, it's and not it makes sense. Yet. Whereas I read Gilgamesh, I'm like, this is weird.
2: Yeah, you know, when people treating like the like the Gnostic gospels as if they're just as like as if the Synoptics are just as yeah. strange as the Gnostic gospels, and they're not. Like, yeah. there's yeah. S- just some wild stuff happens in the yeah. Synoptic. They just do not read with the same, read the same level of
0: kind of feel like and maybe part of this is special pleading because if you have the Spirit of Christ, you just kind of recognize, you know, if you have the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's part of, the, I mean, that's Gaffin's one of, is it Gaffin or is it Murray's point is that part of illumination is rightly understanding and like feeling like this is the Word of God mm-hmm.
1: versus something that's not. Well, that's right at John 10, right? My sheep will know my boys. Yeah.
2: I think there's something to that, but I I also think that there's a lot of special pleading that goes on to make the Gnostic Gospels sound like the synoptics.
0: Well, now we've had a good podcast. Let's just go. Did you record all that?
2: I recorded all that. We'll (laughs) just have to (laughs) edit. edit. I'll put the (laughs) the anti-mumbling filter um, on.